And our first question that was submitted is, Desmond Doss came to my school and spoke. I understood that he was a conscientious objector because he belonged to the same church I did. I knew my church would help me get the same status if I was drafted. I never knew or wondered beyond that. I have since thought a lot about it and find myself thinking about it again as Israel fights. I would like to hear your thoughts on requesting non-combatant status, and particularly on how or if your views have changed since you served. So non-combatant status, as Desmond Doss requested, is only available when you're drafted. It's not available if you volunteer. If you volunteer to go in the military right now, you don't have the option. You can't be a conscientious objector because you're volunteering to go in. But if you're drafted against your will, then you can be a conscientious objector. So I was not a conscientious objector when I went in. That status did not exist. I was a physician when I went in. And physicians have a special status historically as life protectors and are not required to actually go into combat and take combat roles. So I didn't have to really worry about that because of the position I took as a physician. So, um, yes, I still had to go through the training, and, and, and I was never called upon to, do, to use any of the training, but the idea of the training for the physician, and the physician was issued a nine-millimeter weapon to carry, and the, and the idea of that was the physician has the obligation to protect their patients from being killed by other people. They don't have to go into combat, but if, you're, if somebody's trying to kill your patient, you need to protect your patient. That was the idea. Yes? And being a non-combatant, job, which I was for many years, you still have the inalienable right to protect yourself. Yes. So, so that is the other aspect of it as well. Yeah. So, uh, that, so I, I don't know if there's more to the question than that, but, but if there is, then clarify and we can, we can go into it more if there's more to it. Uh, asking for a friend. In Matthew 5.22, King James Version says, but I say unto you, Whoever is angry with a brother without a cause shall be in danger of, of the judgment. The question, and then the question is, what about this without a cause portion? Uh, what do you think Jesus was trying to convey in this portion of the text? I re read it in remedy, in the remedy, and I didn't see where you addressed this portion of the verse. Can you speak uh, to its value or importance? And you don't see it in the remedy. And, and if you have any other versions, check the versions because this is not in the oldest manuscript. This is added later in, a, or in, in the... So you have ancient manuscripts and then you have manuscripts that are, are not as old that come along later that are copies of the older manuscripts. And these, er, these, these younger manuscripts have this phrase in it. The older manuscripts do not have this phrase in it. So most of the modern translations leave out without a cause. And even the SDA Bible commentary actually references and describes that as well. So the King James Version has without a cause, but most of the modern versions do not. So I left it out of the remedy. So, um, and then you, you know, make the case, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you and stuff. So this was added by somebody who was thinking, well, there's, all, there's a right. And then, then this kind of without a cause is often been used to justify just wars <laughs> and all the things that we can do uh, for that. I lead a discussion group each week and need your help. The fourth quarter, we are supposedly studying how to fulfill the Great Commission and how to reach unreached people groups. Yet there seems to be a frustrating dearth of practical information on how to witness to such groups. For example, a Muslim can't understand a God who would not use his power to preserve self. Should we introduce cognitive dissonance? How do we do that? How do we introduce the right God? So, my, my approach is I always have to get to know a little something about 
the people or the group that I'm speaking to. If I go to speak to somebody, I always try to find out well, what you know. Who are these people? What, what's their background? What's the concerns your your church has been struggling with recently? What are the things that are high on their heart and mind and so forth? The more you know about where a group is coming from or a person is coming from, then the easier it is to be able to. Um, present the truths in a way that will meet either their needs or go through doors in their mind that are open to receive the truth. If you know very little about somebody and you're just you know, doing a public presentation and you, there will always be people in, in large audiences that you don't know about that will misunderstand the things you say because they're biases and presuppositions and, 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 and preconceived ideas. And this happens to me all the time. All the time. People will hear things that I'm saying and they will conclude that I said this when I didn't say that at all, or I meant this when I didn't mean that at all. And it also has to do with moral developmental levels. Concrete thinking people can't abstract and if you use certain um, um, images or, or metaphors, they will take them literally. So, <clears throat> sorry, I had a frog in my throat. Somebody's teaching that Jennings eats amphibians, you know? Um, no, I'm not eating amphibians. That's not what I meant. But, but you said you had a frog in your throat. How'd it get there then? Okay, and, and this is how some people process. And so, uh, so the question here, how do, how do you um, be very, you gotta get to know the people. You gotta know something about their mindset and where they're coming from. Uh, I haven't spent a lot of time researching Islam or working with Muslim people. So I don't have a lot of specific things to say about that. But I, I will tell you, I would, I would absolutely ask questions about how do you understand God's law works? And I would draw the distinction between the creator because that works for them. They believe in the creator and the creator's laws of physics and health and, uh, how, and how those things work on people and human laws and how human laws work. I would, I would start with this and see where it went. I don't know how they'll respond to it, but, but you're exactly right. They, they can't conceive of a God who would, who would not use power because they, uh, they have an entire punitive power over authoritarian punishing system. They have a human law system. And so I would, I would go, go at that angle to try and get them to see God as creator and that his laws aren't, don't function that way. And then there's Old Testament stories where he says, yes, but, the, but right here uh, in, in, in Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and, and so forth, we see God telling him to do this. Yes, for what purpose? And we've already explained for what purpose. Do you see, uh, this is a question, um, a person submitted, I read the question, I don't understand the question, I don't understand what's being asked, so I don't know how to answer it. So whoever submitted it, um, try to submit it in a way that, that in a different way, because I don't know what's being asked, so I can't answer that question. And then somebody's asking a question about light boxes for depression. Do they help? Absolutely. If you get the right light box, uh, one that actually has the right light, and you use it in the right way, uh, the light boxes, you need a 10,000 lux therapy light. So lux is how they measure the intensity of the light. These lights might be close to that. These are very bright lights, okay? But it's a 10,000 lux. You can get them online. They're very inexpensive these days. Uh, if you decide to use it for depression, it has to be used generally for most people. You get the best effect if you use it before 7 a.m. It has to be used 18 inches from your face or closer. You do not have to stare at the light. You can be having a meditation, just having it shine into your eyes. Eyes have to be open. The light actually causes changes in various molecules. Melatonin thought to be one of them, hemoglobin thought to be another. Um, the light causes these changes, and those molecule changes, change molecules will diffuse through the venules in the back of the eye right into the brain and usually get an antidepressant effect within 24 to 72 hours. It's very quick. Uh, and... 
24 to 72 hours from starting to use the light. And antidepressants take weeks. So you can get a very robust and positive. It's dose dependent. The more light you use, the bigger the effect. Side effects of doing this, if you happen to be vulnerable to bipolar disorder, it absolutely will flip bipolar patients into mania if you get too much light. Bipolars are very sensitive to, to the light. Um, so I have a few that, that are on mood stabilizers and they use five minutes, 10 minutes of light in the morning. People without bipolar might use 30 minutes to 60 minutes in the morning. And it's, uh, it's energizing. And uh, for the non-bipolar patient, if you get too much light at six in the morning, at 10 at night when you go to go to bed, you're staring at the ceiling. You're wide awake still. You've got to back the light down that next morning um, and uh, find the dose where you have the energy and motivation you want without the, um, without the sleep impairments at night. So these are some of the things about the light box, but they absolutely help. Natural sunlight do the same thing? So he said, well, natural sunlight, yes, natural sunlight absolutely will. The problem is in northern latitudes, you're not getting natural sunlight until after 7 o'clock. The sun doesn't come up till 7.30. And uh, the, the light is interacting with melatonin that's, that's releasing your brain at night while you sleep, and melatonin clears the brain about 7 in the morning. So in the summer, this is, what, this is what leads to what's called seasonal affective disorder, where people get depressed in the winter times when you have the long nights and the short days. And in the summertime, those same people are feeling great because the light's up, and they're up, and they're, and they're getting that sunlight in, in earlier in the day. So, um, yes, but sunlight would do the same thing. Gracious Father, thank you so much for this opportunity to, uh, to get together in fellowship. We, we are thankful for the opportunity to share a meal together. We ask that you'll bless this food to strengthen and nourish us and we can fulfill your purposes. We pray in your holy name, amen.